Father, we want to join with Jesus with that same submissive heart, trusting you to the very end, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, God, would you give us that kind of humble, moldable heart that we would want to see you glorified, you lifted up, you honored in any way that you choose because we trust you. We trust your goodness even when we don't understand how what you're doing could be good. We trust you. Make us those kind of people today. That's what we need. We need to see your glory in our hearts so that we trust you. Please make that happen. We pray that you would help us to see what's in your word. And seeing glory there, we would believe it and be transformed. Please, Father, we ask in your precious son's name, amen. So last week, we started chapter 5. We made our way through verse 15, 1 through 15 of chapter 5. And what we saw was there was a man who had been unable to move for 38 years. He had nobody to help him. And Jesus finds the man out, and he heals him on the Sabbath. That man is questioned by the Jews. They want to know, why are you carrying a mat around on the Sabbath? You know you're not supposed to do that. And he says, well, the man who healed me told me to carry my mat. And they say, who healed you? We want to know who did it. Verses 16 through 18 are the conclusion of that story. So this really is one section that we've broken up into two parts. Verses 16 and 18 are wrapping up this story of the man who had been healed after 38 years. So what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at the Sabbath. Luke talked about it when he prayed. The Sabbath is at the center of this controversy, and really it will be throughout Jesus' life. So we're going to talk about what it is. What's the Sabbath? Why is it so important to this passage? Then we're going to talk about God's relationship to the Sabbath. God has a different relationship to the Sabbath than the Jews did. We'll see that. And then we're going to see how Jesus is working to bring about the final purpose of the Sabbath, even though to the Pharisees, he looks like he's breaking the Sabbath. So that's what we're going to see to close. So let's talk about the Sabbath. This is a big issue for the Pharisees. So last week, we briefly mentioned that God had commanded his people in the Old Testament that there was one day a week they were not to work. It was Saturday. It was supposed to be a day of rest. They were going to be rejuvenated. But it was also a day to declare to yourself and to other people that God is the one who takes care of you. God's the one who takes care of me. You are declaring by not working, I trust God to care for me. Everybody else is going, whoa, you're losing one-seventh of your productivity time. How are you going to take care of yourself? And the Jews could say, we do this because God commanded us, and we trust that he's going to take care of us. He's the one who ultimately supplies all our needs. That's why I'm not panicked for taking one-seventh of my week off. God provides my needs. The Sabbath was patterned after God's rest. Luke read that. God created the world in six days, 
And in Genesis 2, 2 and 2, 3, we see that he rests. He creates everything and then he rests. And the question is, why did God rest? I mean, was he tired? Creating the universe isn't easy. It takes a lot of energy, I'd imagine, to create the universe. Was God tired? No. He does not grow faint or weary. That's what Isaiah 40, 28 says. God can make the universe. He can make all the suns in the universe burn without breaking a sweat. So it's not because God is tired. Now, one reason God rests on the seventh day is to establish a pattern for his people. Six days of work, on the seventh you rest. But God was doing more than that. When God worked for six days to create the world, and then he finished it off by resting, he was showing us what the purpose of creation is, what its purpose is. If you build a car yourself, I know there's probably no one in here that could do that. Maybe there's one or two people. But you build a car, what are you going to do when you finish it? You're going to drive it. That's the purpose of building a car. If you make dinner for yourself, what are you going to do when you're done making it? You're going to eat it. Kids, you get a Lego set, you build it. What are you going to do at the end? You're going to play with it. Adults don't. Adults build it, and then they just set it aside and look at it. That's not the purpose, Audrey. That's not the purpose. When God creates everything and then he rests, he's showing why it exists. He's saying, I'm making a world so that men and women and eventually all things will join me in my rest. That's the purpose of creation. God has always been happy. You get that? God has always been the most happy being that could ever exist. He's always been completely joyful and completely at rest and peace. He didn't have to create the world to do that. He created the world and then rested to show us, I want you to join me in what I've always had. That's why God rests. So how do you join that rest? How do you join the rest and peace and joy that God has always had in himself? Well, Luke mentioned it. Hebrews 4 tells us. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And then perhaps some more after that. We'll see. Hebrews 4, verse 1. The author of Hebrews says, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. He's talking about the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, Enter that rest. So here we find out, even though we are waiting for a final rest in heaven with God, that's the final Sabbath rest. When we get to heaven, we get to be with him. 
you can actually enter God's rest now by believing. Did you hear that in verse 3? We who have believed enter that rest. Hebrews 4 goes on. I'm I'm jumping down to verse 9 now. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author of Hebrews is telling us, even though we're waiting for the final rest of heaven, you can enter that rest now by trusting God to save you rather than trusting on your own works to save you. That's how you can enter now. He's saying right now you need to stop working to try to earn salvation from God, earn favor from him. The way you enter God's rest is by stopping your work believing in him to work everything that needs to be worked for you to be saved. And that's what God does. He works for us everything that has to be done in order for us to be rescued. He sends Jesus who makes the payment for your sins by dying on the cross for you. Jesus, not you, lives a righteous life in your place to earn heaven for you. That's what he's doing when he's walking on earth those 33 years. He's earning heaven for his people. He's risen from the dead, defeating death for you. He sends the Holy Spirit to help you grow in holiness. He will keep you trusting until the end, and then he'll bring you to heaven. The Sabbath was a sign, even in the Old Testament, that God's people were made to join God in his joyful, peaceful rest. He's the happiest being that could ever be. And he's made this world so that you could have it. You could have him. And the way you get to partake of that is by resting now in God, relying on him alone to save you and help you in every way you need saving. Are you experiencing that rest now? Isn't this just a tremendous promise? The promise of eternal joy and rest. How do I get it? I've got to do some great feat to get there. And the way you get that rest is by resting now. Trusting God to supply what you need through Jesus. That's what the Sabbath was always meant to point towards. And of course, the Pharisees don't understand this. The Pharisees think that keeping the Sabbath is a work that they can do to earn God's favor. Do you see the irony there? The Sabbath is supposed to point to the fact that we rest in God to rescue us, and they're taking the Sabbath, and they're making it a work so they can earn God's favor. And when Jesus heals this crippled man on the Sabbath... He searches the man out in order to help this man find eternal rest in God. We saw that last week. He cares about this man's soul, not just his body. That's what the Sabbath is pointing towards. The Pharisees want to kill him for doing that. Irony again. Jesus is trying to help this man rest in God, and they want to kill him for doing it on the Sabbath. Now, let's talk about what it means for God to work on the Sabbath. 
because this is a big part of this passage. Look at verse 17. They have a problem with Jesus working on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So the Pharisees are saying, don't do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds, God works on the Sabbath. That's something the Jews already knew. This was a question that they wrestled with, okay? People are supposed to rest on the Sabbath. Does God rest on the Sabbath? Or does he break the law of Moses? If God rested on the seventh day in Genesis 2, does that mean that every seven days God stops working? Now, here's how some of the Jews in the first century reasoned this out, and they really did. Rabbis wrote this out. It's in the Mishnah, that's what it's called. They argued, according to their traditions, that on the Sabbath, men and women shouldn't move anything from one home to another. And, because that would be work, that would be breaking the law, so they said, and you shouldn't carry anything over your shoulder, because that means it's got to be really heavy, and if it requires you to carry it over your shoulder, then that's work. But, they said, because God is already everywhere, he can't move from one home to another. So even if he's doing stuff, he's not moving from one house to another house. He's everywhere already. And because he's God, there are no objects so big that he would need to carry them over his shoulder. So God can still do work on the Sabbath, and it doesn't count as work. That's, that is silly, but it's how they reasoned in order to to make God, the activity of God, fit within their traditions. They knew that God had to keep working on the Sabbath. He stopped working on the seventh day of creation, but that means he stopped creating. If God actually stopped working, what would happen? Everything would stop existing. God didn't just create a world and wind it up like a clock or a toy and let it go and sit back and watch. Every moment, he is sustaining us and all things by the word of his power. If God were to stop working every Saturday, there would be no Saturday. You get that? So the Jews knew when it comes to the way that beings, beings relate to the Sabbath, God can work. You can't. God's on one side as it relates to the Sabbath, and everybody else is on the other side. So in verse 17, which side does Jesus put himself on? My father is working until now, and I'm working. Jesus is saying, yes, God does work on the Sabbath. My father does, and so do I. Do you hear his argument? Now, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even here in the book of John, when Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath... Sometimes he'll give the Pharisees good reasons why what he's doing is not breaking the Sabbath. 
he'll say, guys, healing someone, doing that kind of good is not breaking the law of Moses. And he could have said that right here, and he would be right. But that's not the way he argues. He's not explaining that it's okay in this case for him to work on the Sabbath. Instead, he says, you know what? God, my Father, works on the Sabbath, and that means I do too. And the Jews understand what he means. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. They're not misunderstanding him. He intends for them to hear him say, if the Father gets to work, I get to work. He's claiming to be equal with God. He is God. He's not God the Father. That's clear from this text. He's God the Son. The Jews know that he's claiming as God's Son to be on equal footing with God. And we should know it too. This is so crucial. It's so crucial. You cannot have Jesus and be saved in any saving way and take away his divinity. It is utterly crucial for our salvation that Jesus is one with God. If you lose the divinity of Jesus Christ, you lose everything. And I'm just going to mention three reasons. Because the divinity of Christ, the fact that he's God, figures so much into this passage. Here are just three quick reasons why it's crucial. It's necessary for our salvation. It's necessary it's necessary for the good news of the gospel to work for us. Because he is infinite God, he can pay for infinite sins against an infinite holy God. Now, he has to be a man in order to take the place of mankind, but he has to be God as well in order to be worthy enough to pay for our sins with his death. And he is. It's necessary for our salvation. It's necessary for our knowing God, for us to be able to know him. Because Jesus is God, he can show us what God is like. So he's a man, so as creatures, we can actually relate to him. But because he's God, everything he says and he does shows us what God is like. If you want to know what's God really like, you get to look at Jesus as he lived and walked and taught and especially as he died. That's how we see who God most truly is. It shows us what God is like, like nothing else. It's necessary for our sanity. It's necessary for our sanity. If you really believe that our Jesus is the most loving, kind, generous, gentle, wise, humble man who ever lived. If you believe he came to die for you and that he is sovereign God of all things, 
then you have a remedy for every anxiety and hope in the face of any loss. If that Jesus who came to die for you is also Lord of all, it means all things will work for your good. All things. You have there in that truth a remedy for every anxiety and hope no matter what suffering or loss you're facing. And it's because he is very God, a very God. Your Savior is the one who's in charge of all things. Now let's talk about the work that Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. So this is the third section. We talked about this a good bit already, but let's dig in some more. Because in verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So what work is Jesus working on this Sabbath day? Well, the first thing that we could call work that Jesus is doing is that he heals a man. That's part of the work he's doing. Again, doesn't need as much energy as creating a universe, but putting a man's body back together with just your voice certainly requires a great amount of power. This man's fixed in an instant, whereas today, hours of surgery might do something for him and recovery for weeks and months. In a moment, at the sound of Jesus' voice, this man is healed. You could say that's work, and it's part of the work Jesus is doing, but beyond that, we saw last week he's seeking this man's salvation. You remember in verse 14, he finds the man again in the temple. The man doesn't know who he is, so he finds him out again in the temple, and he tells him to sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to him. He's seeking not just this man's physical healing, but his spiritual wholeness, that he'd be saved from God's judgment. That's what he wants for this man. That's what he's after. And if you remember in chapter 4 when we were talking about the Samaritans, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 34 of chapter 4 that his food is to do the work of his Father. Same word. And the work he does in chapter 4 is he leads many Samaritans to believe in him. And what do they believe about him? He's the Savior of the world. That's the work Jesus is coming to do. Sure, he heals this man's body, but he's doing other work. He's showing this man how to be saved. There's other work he's doing as well on this Sabbath day. Jesus is intentionally orchestrating his own death. He is setting into motion conflict with the Pharisees that will end in his crucifixion. If you were to ask, what's the main point of this section? What's the main point of John 5, verses 1 through 18? You might say, well, this section is about the compassion of Jesus. And it's there. The compassion of Jesus is there. You could also say it's to show that Jesus is equal to God, which is true. But in John, we already knew those things. We'd already seen the compassion of Jesus. 
We'd seen from the very first verses that this one is very God, a very God. In this passage, the compassion of Jesus on the Sabbath and his claim to do the same work God does on the Sabbath are given as reasons for something new. The Jews want him dead. This is a turning point in the Gospel of John. This is the very first time we read that the Jews want to kill him. This here in chapter 5 begins the death march that will end in chapter 19 with his crucifixion and his burial. Did Jesus not know that it was the Sabbath when he healed this man? He did. Did Jesus not know that the Pharisees didn't allow people to carry things around on the Sabbath? He did. Of course he did. Now notice, all the way back in verse 8 of chapter 5, Jesus could have told this crippled man, get up, leave your bed there, and go home. And guess what? No one would have cared. But he didn't do that. He gave this man multiple commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. He commanded this man to do something on the Sabbath that would infuriate the Pharisees. And his explanation to them that, well, he's just doing what God does, only sealed their commitment to kill him. And that's his purpose. That's what I want you to see. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is not running from his death. This is his purpose. Acts 2, 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In this gospel, John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Which means when the Jews plan to kill Jesus... It's only because Jesus is working his plan through his death to save the world. That's what he's doing. Jesus is a real man, and he's also fully God. So he's able to live a righteous life and pay for our wickedness. This is why he came. We're talking about Jesus' purpose now. He's paying for our wickedness. Do you know that you're wicked? It's the only way you can be healed. He had to die as a substitute for us. He came to die. Think of the bravery of this man. He knows his purpose to hang in our place under the wrath of God on a cross. And he heals a man on the Sabbath, and he tells the Jews he's doing the same work that God does in order to bring that about. What wisdom, what kindness, what courage. And the great irony is this. The Jews think Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. 
And so they decide to kill him, which is all a part of the plan he's working on the Sabbath to bring those he dies for into his father's Sabbath rest forever. So let's put this all together. The purpose of the Sabbath is to show us that we need God himself to bring us into his rest, his life, his joy, his peace. He has to do it for us. Because Jesus is one with God, he also works on the Sabbath day. The Jews can't stand it. And so they decide to kill him. But the death of Jesus is the way God does all the work to save us to bring us into his final Sabbath rest. So trust him. And we say this frequently, but the main application of every text in the Bible, the main way you apply what you read in the mornings when you're reading the Bible, the Bible for yourself or at night or when you're listening to a sermon at church, the main application is do you trust this one? Do you trust him? Do you see that he's trustworthy? So trust him. If you don't know him, I, I hope you hear this because you might feel like an outsider, like these people are talking about Jesus. I don't really know anything about Jesus or I know a few things about him, but I'm not trusting him. I'm on the outside. He will Count the righteousness of Jesus to you. He'll do it. He'll count his death for you. Rest from working to earn your salvation. Rest. That's the command. Just rest. Trust him. Trust him. Believers, trust him in the day-to-day -day struggles and temptations of your life. He will give you strength so that you can rest from the burden of being the God of your life. I mean, what a difference it makes to know you are not God, but there is a God who will care for you. He gives joy and peace in believing in this life. That's Romans 15, 13. It's not always immediate, but he will give it joy and peace in believing. So rest, believers. And trust him to bring you one day into his final rest. So for those who, who rest in him in this life, who believe in him, he will bring us to his father in that final Sabbath. There will be no sickness, no pain, no sin, no death, no unpleasant stress. We will be wrapped into the life of God. That's really coming. It's really coming. You ever had a day at work and you get home and you sit down and you don't have anything to do the next day? It's amazing, isn't it? That's just a little tiny drop foretaste of what is coming. It really is coming to those who rest in him now. You will be with the happy, joyful God who has always been at rest and he will be your treasure in your life forever. It's coming for those who rest in Jesus now. This is God's work. It's God's work to bring us into his rest. 
and Jesus has accomplished it for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your Son. You and your Son in the Spirit have always lived in joyful, peaceful rest forever. And you made this world so that creatures might participate in your life, your rest. And Jesus, you left the riches of heaven to live among us in our suffering and pain, to die on the cross for us. And not just to die on the cross, but to defeat death for us, rise from the dead to be our righteousness and our king forevermore. So we bless you. Help us to trust you, to trust you. You're so trustworthy and good. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.